On April 19, 1995, explosions tore through the Federal Building in Oklahoma City, ripping through the consciousness of America. 168 people were killed and hundreds wounded. Since that day of horror, groundbreaking new information has come to light. So provocative, so explosive, that it threatens to shatter everything we thought we knew about the true base of terrorism. Based on the damage pattern to the building, what the government says is impossible. I haven't stopped asking questions because I know that we haven't been told the truth. What that tells you is that there were other explosive devices in the building that actually brought the building down. I know for a fact Timothy McVeigh was with another individual on the morning of April 19th, right before the bombing. He made the comment, yeah, we knew this was going to happen. That caused a lot of questions in people's minds about well, what really happened here? The enhanced photo shows a very distinct possibility of a man standing behind that truck. A lot of patients, I think, were lost that could have been saved. The people that did the things they did knew doggone well what they were doing. Some of these columns were ripped up, shredded, tossed around. God, I hate to think that they did it on purpose. everybody to nwczradio.com channel one's down the rabbit hole my name is big d and i'm brandon welcome once again brand new episode here on down the rabbit hole want to first thank everybody who's sent in emails and who listens we seem to be cruising along pretty well and that's because that's because there's a lot of you listening and we appreciate that well and from some of the stuff i've seen there's a lot of you listening and a lot of you sharing that's true, too. Yeah, well, inside baseball, <laughs> this platform that we use, at the end of the year, they give us this sort of rundown with all the, the numbers and stuff, and we, we don't really pay, pay attention to it, but they send it to us, and so we look at it. And the thing that stuck out the most to me were, A, how many countries people are listening to us from, and B, yes, it's because you're sharing it, whether it be text message, email, or on your social media, and we appreciate that so much. Yes, very much so. Because we've said before, we don't advertise. I'm not even on social media, and we just put it out there and let things happen. So you guys are making it happen, and we appreciate that. All right, well, let's get into today's topic because we've got a lot to discuss today here on the big show. And I don't know that we're going to fit it all in this episode. We'll try to. If not, we'll make this a two-parter because there's a lot of information, more than I thought was available. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, when we decided to, to do this topic, we thought, well, there's some things, obviously, because anytime there's something of this magnitude, it's rarely exactly as they say it is. But I didn't realize how deep this goes because when this happened there was no internet no. and the media was super controlled 
like it is now and even more so then because there were there was no way to get the word out if there was an alternate story. So what we're going to talk about today is the Oklahoma City bombing. For those of you who weren't around, it happened in 1995. It was April 19th. I remember it. And subsequently, since that time, I've been to Oklahoma City a couple of different times. I've been to the memorial. I've seen the aftermath, the building, and I've seen what they've put in its place. And it's it's very sobering. There's no doubt about it because a lot of people died. A lot of kids died. And a lot of people were hurt quite bad. And this was, at the time, when this happened, the single largest domestic terrorist incident or any kind of incident of this magnitude on U.S. soil. It was big. Now, 9-11 has obviously overshadowed that. Mm -hmm. 9-11 was a much bigger deal. But at the time, this was all that anybody could talk about it was i think it woke a lot of people up sort of america was sort of in this malaise we were just kind of clipping along bill clinton was president Uh, this was back when politics you basically people were pretty close on most issues they they were arguing over taxes and you know stuff that really didn't matter but Nobody saw this coming, and it shocked the world. In 1993, and we're not going to talk about this extensively today, but I just want, just for reference point, in 1993, the World Trade Center in New York was also bombed. Yes. And it was huge news for about two days, and then it disappeared. And when I say disappeared, the facts disappeared. People still talked about it. But they put a wrap on it with the media almost immediately because they needed to investigate it. They needed to look into it. They stopped showing photographs of it. They stopped showing people who were involved in it. They shut it all down. And then it just became a topic of, well, what are we going to do about these people who are trying to bomb our building? And the facts disappeared. So two years later, we have this bomb in Oklahoma City. This one has a lot of real problems. We're going to have to do the World Trade Center at some point, but this one, this has a lot of problems. So let's take a look at kind of the timeline of the day just to set things up. Oklahoma City, it's the largest city in Oklahoma. If you've never been there, uh, I don't blame you. Apologies to my Oklahomans, but (laughs) my parents lived in Altus, Oklahoma. So if you know Oklahoma, you know where that is. Anywho, sleepy, kind of mid to large town, certainly not a huge town by any stretch. Everybody's just doing their thing. And there's this, uh, the building is the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. So it's a federal building. And this is where they did federal things. There was federal court there. And there was a daycare at this building and everybody made a huge deal about the fact that there was a daycare at this building. Mm -hmm. So on April 19th, 1995, about nine o'clock, there's a uh, explosion that goes on. It's about nine Oh two. This deadly blast happens and all hell breaks loose. Somebody parks a rider truck outside. You can see it on the videotape. 
or the security camera tape. That person gets in a car and takes off. That person is Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh said, because he got caught later, obviously, he said that he was basically two or three blocks down the road when he detonated this fertilizer and diesel bomb in yes. this rider truck. Well, kind of depends on the report. Some of the reports that I read said that he started, it was a normal fuse, almost like a normal bomb. He just lit it and walked away, but he had a five minute like window to get away. Right. So. Yeah. And I've heard different reports. 1995 technology, the way it was, he probably did light something. Yeah. And then walked and walked and then ran to this car and took off. But it comes down to like, you know, like I mentioned in the last episode, when there's blank areas and missing information, people fill in the blanks. And in some ways that's what happens in this. In some areas. But in others, I think the area the the filling in the blanks it needed to happen because the government purposefully made those blanks empty or just shut them down. Yes. So the initial reports on the ground from the local Oklahoma affiliates who all were close by, all their buildings are close by. The downtown's not that big. They're grabbing people as they're coming out of the building and people are talking about, there's a second bomb in the building. And some mm -hmm. were even talking about a third bomb that they were all running. And in one of the clips, you can hear a secondary blast go off. There's one gentleman I saw, they're following him out in his office, the whole office. He was like on the, I think the fourth floor, third or fourth floor. And the whole office floor just disappeared with the, with the exception of sort of this u-shape and his desk happened to be in it and he had ducked under it but he said it felt like an earthquake like a rumbling and then a blast and then as he was getting out and they were walking away another blast went off there's a lot of the weird reports of the one blast and the second one after where the government tried to explain it as well there was a blast and then because an explosion, all the air and everything goes out, it has to be sucked back in. And that's the second blast. And it's like, eh, I'm not sure if I believe that. Well, there's several problems. One, they claimed that when the after the truck blew up, that there was a huge crater, that it, it caused this huge crater. Before they yanked it, there's lots of footage of people leaving the building and subsequently, after it's been sort of semi-secured, walking back in and police and fire running in, and there is no crater. Yeah. None. Not in front of the building, not beside the building, not down the block, zero. So that was a problem. The other problem is, if you look at the building, if a truck's parked out in front, now it didn't pull up to the front door. It was on the street, and there's a promenade that goes all the way up to the building if a blast were to go off especially and we'll talk about why in a moment because they actually did a test on this there's no way 
that at the angle that it was, how far this blast would have had to go to hit the building, that it could have made done the damage that it did. Even taking into consideration, because the, the FBI and the government tried to come out and say, well, it's an old building, it had weak points, and some of the structure wasn't up to snuff, and so forth. Even considering that, if you look at the debris of the building, the blast obviously happened inside the building because everything blew out towards the truck. And that's where you're talking about the, F the FBI tried to explain that by saying, oh no, the blast went in and created this vacuum and sucked it all back out. Yes. Uh, nobody's ever heard of that theory before. Not that I've ever, I, I tried to look it up. I couldn't find it in any other blast theories. I couldn't find anyone, any theory but Oklahoma, where they said that basically, and I, and I understand the idea of the theory, but not in the magnitude of what they're talking about here, where when the explosion goes out, it's going to push all of the, you know, the air and everything else outwards during the explosion, and then it's all going to suck back in. Yes, to an extent, but not. Uh, I don't see it to the extent that they're talking about in this. That they're basically talking about that it gives a equal, like, or almost in some ways more damaging effect than their initial blast. Blast that the second is going to give that more. I don't see it. No, I don't either. And in fact, in 1997, at the Elgin Air Force Base, there was a test done. It was called the Case Study Relating Blast Effects Test to the events of April 19, 1995, better known as the Elgin Structure Blast Affecting Test, or ETS. It was done by several of the military. Uh, it was like a joint military testing. Mm-hmm. And if you would like, anybody would like, I can send you this. I have the whole thing where they reconstructed the building. They actually reconstructed a few different times and blasted it from different directions with the same supposed bomb that McVeigh used. And then they tested the theory of the radius of the bombs. Then they tested the theory of interior bombs and time bombs and all kind of stuff. The conclusion was this. The damage to the Murrah Federal Building is consistent with damage resulting from mechanically coupled devices placed locally within the structure as there are certain similarities with the resultant damage to the Murrah Building and with tests two and three. It must be concluded that the damage at the Murrah Federal Building is not the result of the truck bomb itself, but rather due to other factors such as locally placed charges within the building itself. That's huge. Very huge. Didn't make the news. Well, no, because it doesn't meet the narrative. Because the narrative was that it was Timothy McVeigh by himself with a little bit of help from Terry Nichols. And that's it. When this all happened, if you don't remember the story, so McVeigh leaves, he takes off, he gets pulled over. I think they arrested him on a handgun charge. It was a 
no license plates and a he was had a concealed weapons without the correct permit in the in Oklahoma. Right. Through that, Terry Nichols' name came out, and a lot of people had said there were three. There was John Doe one, John Doe two. And so initially, everybody was on the lookout for these John Doe's. Well, that brings us to this guy. This is such a sad story. This guy named Kenneth Michael Trentadu. And this is another story that hardly got any attention. Yeah. And Kenneth Trentadu was not a great guy. He, re- he really wasn't. He was in jail. He had uh, robbed banks. He was addicted to heroin. And he just was not a good guy. On June 10th, 1995... Two months after the Oklahoma City bombing, while crossing the border from Mexico into California, officers ran his driver's license, discovered he was wanted for violation of his parole. He was transferred to Oklahoma City. Trentadu called his brother Jesse. Basically, he fit the bill because he had the snake tattoo and, and everything about him, the robbing, ban- robbing of banks, because a lot of people claim that that's how McVeigh and... Everybody got their money to pull this off as they were part of this white supremacy group. They were robbing banks, and that's how they were funding this. Mm -hmm. And so because this guy fit, sort of checked off a bunch of boxes, they assumed that was him. Now, on August 19th, his brother Jesse described Kenneth, who was on the phone, as uh, sounding like there was a chipper in the call. District Judge Timothy Leonard would later write that during a check of Kenneth's cell at 2.38 a.m. on August 21st, 1995, all was normal with no signs of blood or a suicide attempt. Thus, Trentadu's injuries and hanging occurred in, quote, quite a short period of time. What's he talking about there? Well, this Trentadu, again, no security tape. Nobody knows what happened. But they walked in. And his cell is completely a bloody mess. Complete bloody mess. He's beat to all hell. And he's hung himself. And they immediately rule it a suicide. According to this, the coroner was at first not permitted into the cell where Trentadu had died. The cell itself was washed out by the afternoon of the 21st uh, before the legally required investigation could be performed. The claim that Trentadu had committed suicide was not consistent with the medical examiner's finding, and Trentadu appeared to have been tortured. He had sustained three heavy blows to the head, his throat had been cut, and prison authorities, of course, claimed the wounds were self-inflicted. That all makes sense. Total sense. Well, they, they picked on the wrong guy with this one because his brother, Jesse Trentadu, is a lawyer and a bulldog lawyer. And so he, he's been going after them. He's still going after them. He has done massive investigations against the Oklahoma City Police, the FBI, the government, and everything. According to Fred Jordan, a medical examiner, I think it's very unlikely Trent to do was murdered. I'm not able to prove it. You see a body covered with blood removed from the room as Mr. Trentadu was soaked in blood, covered with bruises. You try to gain access to the scene and the government of the United States says, no, you can't. At that point, we have no crime scene. 
So there are still questions about the death of Kenneth Trentadu that will never be answered because of the actions of the U.S. government. Whether those actions were intentional, whether they were incompetence, I don't know. It was botched or worse, it was planned. Uh, he says, I think it's very likely Trentadu was murdered. Sounds a lot like Epstein. Very much so. It sounds a, a lot like a bunch of cases that we've run across where all of a sudden people just, oh, they end up dead. There's all kind of extenuating circumstances. Like there's no way he could have done this to himself. But you can't ask questions. No. So the most egregious of these, I believe, was Terrence Yeeke. He sometimes goes by Terry. But Terrence Yeeke, this was a story that didn't make the news with the exception of a little blurb that said, oh, he had, by the way, this hero cop committed suicide. And that was it. But let's get into this guy because I think this is a good launching pad for a lot of the clues as to whether this was a planned bomb or it was some random thing done by McVeigh. Because when the bomb went off, Terrence Yeeke was one of the, if not the first police officer on the scene. He was just down the block. He heard it go off. He ran. And he was there for hours. I think they credit him with eight saves. He saved eight people. During the time that he was doing this, several fellow officers said that he recognized something was off. Something was wrong here. When he left and he went home, he called his sister and said and told her, do not believe what you're hearing on the news because he, now he's hearing the reports. He said, that's not what happened. That's not how it went down. I was there. And this was a guy who was not suicidal at all. He was, I think he was a a sergeant. He had just been passed a bunch of tests to go into the FBI. So he was excited about that. He he had just uh, reconciled with his wife. I think they, I don't know if they were officially divorced or not, but they were getting back together. This was a guy who, all accounts, I've seen interviews with his mother, his grandmother, his sister, friends on the force who said, no, he was talking about the future. He was happy. Everything was fine. Mm -hmm. But he started doing his own investigation of those events, of the events of that day. I think it was about a year after. He was having people follow him. He was having harassing phone calls. Uh, In fact, there was one, I I saw an an interview with his sister where he showed up at her house. He was all freaked out. He wasn't feeling well. She wanted to take him to the hospital. He said, no, they can get me there. So she gave him something to eat. He fell asleep. And it was the next morning that he says, I got to go because I I have to go to work. And he never showed up. Mm -hmm. His body was found in a field. And I've seen all this play out. Because there's video out there of people sort of reenacting and showing where the, the car was found and where his body was found and all this stuff. And it's, it's almost impossible. But he was found in a field in El Reno, o- Oklahoma, over a mile away from his abandoned vehicle. I've seen this field. 
There's a barbed wire fence that he would have had to get over. There's a road he would have had to cross. There's another barbed wire fence he would have had to crawl over and then walk a mile into where they found him. Here's what they found in his vehicle. First, an extremely large amount of blood. He had been bound. He had rope burns on his neck, ligature marks on his wrist. Some say it could have been from handcuffs. He had numerous deep cuts from a knife. And when they found him, he had a single bullet execution-style wound in his right temple at a 45-degree angle. Yes. So let's paint this picture. So this car's in a field. They claim that he beat himself up, strangled himself, cut his wrist, bled all over the car, got out, hopped over two barbed wire fences, walked a mile, and somehow held a gun. And I know you can't see me, but he would have had to hold this gun up over his head, pointing down at him. I'm not a super expert on suicide, but that's highly unlikely. It is the angle that he would have had to hold the gun, especially after everything else that he would have had to go through to get there. This doesn't make sense. Not only that, when they first showed up, there was no gun at the scene. Do you know when the gun appeared? When the FBI showed up. Oh, yeah. They suddenly found a gun within five minutes of being there. They found this gun. They immediately said it was a suicide. They claimed that he was having relationship trouble. They claimed that he was freaked out because of all the accolades he was getting. I think he was just a couple of days away from getting some major recognition award. He had already been given the keys to a couple of cities around Oklahoma City for his valor and working so hard. They took his body. The family wasn't allowed to see it. The family immediately said, hey, he didn't commit He didn't commit suicide, didn't kill himself, didn't matter. That was the official narrative, and they were to go with that. They were told to shut up. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what information he had. I don't even know if whoever did that to him, because I mean, the implication is it was the FBI or the FBI did it through the local law enforcement uh, office. Somebody did it to him. There's no way this was a suicide. No way. No way at all. And I know just from some interviews with a couple of his police buddies that he was talking about that, yes, there were definitely bombs in there. There were uh, He saw them. Because the other thing that happened was, so he gets there to the Oklahoma City bombing, and several of his fellow officers get there. And as soon as the ATF and the FBI and all of those guys showed up, they sealed off where the, quote, bomb damage was. That, because they're saying, oh, the structure, it's, you know, it's going to go, it's going to go, so we're going to seal this off. You guys dig people out over there. We've got this part. And the theory is, is that they went in and removed the bombs that didn't go off. Yeah, that's one of the theories. 
I have interesting parallels. Thought this was interesting. World Trade Center 93, 95, you have the Oklahoma City bombing, and then, of course, you have the 9-11. The investigators on the scene from the government at Oklahoma City was Dr. W. Gene Corley, Charles Thornton, Paul Malacker, and Meet Sozin. The investigators on the scene at the World Trade Center, Dr. W. Gene Corley, Charles Thornton, Paul Malacker, and Meet Sozin. Here's the other problem. Same thing with the World Trade Center. When they got all the rubble out, when they got everything out, they immediately took it and recycled it all. They didn't sift through it. They didn't reconstruct it. They didn't set it up. They didn't comb through it. They trucked it out of there, and it went to a recycling bin, and it was gone. The Oklahoma City bombing, very similar thing. They brought in all these trucks. They loaded them all up with the debris, and they took them out to a landfill, and they buried it all immediately. Well, yeah, because if it's gone and buried, there's no proof. There's no evidence. As a result of the World Trade Center, we had the U.S. Patriot Act of 2001. That was a result of that. And the legislation passed in the wake of Oklahoma City was the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 96. So mm -hmm. you had two significant passages of legislation that severely restricted U.S. citizens. This is an article from December 31st, 2011. This is Eric Holder. And if you don't know who Eric Holder is, he was in the Obama administration. And this is uh, as a result of some FOIA requests that Trentadu has put out uh, trying to figure out what happened to his brother. He says... The Department of Justice through the FBI and ATF informants was involved in the Oklahoma City bombing, according to Trent Adu. Attached to an affidavit was a 302 FBI witness statement filed by some guy named Selby. Guy named Moore was an Arkansas gun dealer and FBI informant who worked with the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. The man widely believed to have originally given McVeigh the idea of bombing the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Both were handled by FBI agents Larry Potts, a senior FBI official who had allegedly personally ordered the murder of members of the Randy Weaver family at Ruby Ridge, Idaho. At the time of the bombing, our current, well, not our current, but at the time, United States Attorney General Eric Holder was managing FBI sting operations as U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia and sitting in line to take over for Deputy General. One of Holder's first jobs was to cover up the FBI's role in the bombing. According to this, quote, I think they put together this harebrained idea to lure in all these militia groups under the pretense of teaching them how to attack the federal government, and I think they plan to catch them in the act, said Jesse Trentadu. Now, these are all thoughts on him, but according to him, he says, when you look at these documents, this is what was being monitored, the search for box of explosives at the highest level within the Department of Justice, right up to and including the White House. This wasn't your local FBI office handling this. It was being run right out of the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's a lot of articles. Attorney General Holder tied to OKC bombings. And, of course, he was the uh, attorney general under Obama. So another person that you may find interesting who was involved in all of this, Merrick Garland. A lot of articles come out. This is from 2021, how the Oklahoma City bombing case prepared Merrick Garland to take on domestic terrorism. Merrick Garland was the one who encouraged uh, prosecutors to speed the trial up against Timothy McVeigh, uh, to basically give him the death penalty immediately. There was hardly a trial. I mean, he was guilty, guilty, guilty. As soon as they caught him, there was no questions. That we, we didn't even need to find out what, why, who, when, or where. Just get him out because Merrick Garland said so. And, of course, he's the Justice Department Attorney General. I mean, I think that's one of the things that bugs me the most about it is they pushed it through so fast. What were they hiding to get it through so quickly? Yeah, and McVeigh hardly had a, a moment to talk. I saw an interview he did on 60 Minutes, I believe it was with Ed Bradley, and even that was brief. And all Ed mm -hmm. Bradley did was basically tell him you're an evil person and that's what everybody thinks you're evil. Why should we not believe you're evil? Didn't even really ask him questions. No. Several problems, too, with eyewitnesses. There were basically no eyewitnesses. Nobody saw Timothy McVeigh. Even, even the cameras don't show Timothy McVeigh. They show a truck, but you don't see anybody. No. According to a 1995 press conference, they described a suspect of medium build. He's further described as 5 feet 9 inches to 5 feet 10 weighing approximately 175 to 180 with brown hair, a tattoo visible on his left arm below his T-shirt sleeve. He's possibly a smoker. Three eyewitnesses from Elliot's body shop provided this description of a man who, alongside McVeigh, picked up the bomb truck on April 17th. There's also a lot of problems with that because I've seen photos, now they could be doctored, I don't know, of McVeigh walking into a McDonald's around that time. Mm -hmm. And there's no way those... Two things can't be happening at the same time. No, and there's plenty of like witnesses that say there was a second person with McVeigh when they did see him. There were also a lot of people who were eyewitnesses to, they don't know that they were FBI, or they don't know who they were, but people who were coming in and out of the Murrow building two weeks, a week, several days before all this went down, they had no idea who they were. They were dressed as a maintenance men, but they weren't the normal maintenance men. They were carrying stuff around. Nobody knew what they were doing. And they were just told, uh, yeah, they're just, don't worry about it. And they were on the mm -hmm. second floor, the third floor, and the first floor. Also, FBI forensic scientist Dr. Frederick Whitehurst was the first to raise concerns about unscientific practices occurring at the FBI crime lab, after which an extensive investigation discovered fabricated evidence used in the Oklahoma City bombing case. What kind of fabricated evidence? Well, there's all kinds of problems. For example, chemistry and toxicology unit chief Roger Martz didn't have a degree. Head of the crime lab's explosive unit, David Williams, had a degree in zoology and never served time through a bomb squad. 
Dr. Whitehurst began observing and documenting practices at the crime lab that constituted notable examples of misconduct. As a whistleblower, he was treated severely. He was first fired by the FBI, who ultimately settled in court paying him $1.2 million and an undisclosed sum for damages. In addition, the Justice Department Inspector General investigated the crime lab and produced a damning report. Says that there were serious flaws, used un unscientific practices, and had made unjustified conclusions which lacked scientific foundation. Well, they didn't need scientific foundation. They just needed to prove their theories. They also destroyed evidence. Acting on a tip in 2005, the FBI raided former Kansas resident convicted bomber Terry Nichols, where they seized a bunch of explosives. Nichols told the FBI in interviews that among the carefully wrapped and preserved explosives, they would find the fingerprints of an unindicted co-conspirator in the bombing. Unfortunately, we'll never know whether this is true or not because the FBI destroyed the evidence. No, they never do that. Despite this uh, indication, this according to this article, the FBI crime lab made no indication of their report, of this in the report as far as this fingerprint. Investigator Roger Charles suggested that the FBI did recover prints from the stashed explosives. Charles explained that a highly placed FBI official told Deputy Bureau Chief of the Associated Press, John Solomon, that four sets of fingerprints were discovered. Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, Roger Moore, and Richard Lee Guthrie. And according to all accounts, they were planted. That's just, those, that's just what I've heard. Yes. On the morning of April 19, 1995, several Oklahomas had disturbing encounters with ATF agents at the Murrow Building during these uh, rescue operations. These individuals include rescue volunteers and emergency first responders who were triaging the wounded while working with ambulance and rescue personnel. Several of these people testified before a grand jury to investigate the bombing, what ATF agents had told them that morning. Prior to testifying, these witnesses were published in the McCurtain Gazette, and here's what some of them had to say. Bruce Shaw recounted that the ATF agent he spoke to attempted to reach someone on a two-way radio but couldn't get a response. He said they were in debriefing, that none of the agents had been in there. They'd been tripped by their pagers not to come into work that day. Plain as day out of his mouth. Those were the words he said. Third witness, Catherine Millette, was interviewed on TV. She stated that as she was Prepping an ambulance to transport victims to area hospitals, two ATF agents walked by. She overheard their discussion. One agent said to the other, is this why we got the page not to come in today? Second rescue worker, Tiffany Bible, who was a paramedic. Bible's first impression was that there was some sort of natural gas explosion. When she approached an ATF agent on site, she asked, how could a gas explosion cause so much damage? The agent told her, it was not a gas explosion, but a truck bomb. This exchange occurred only five minutes after the blast. If you look at the timeline and the records, they didn't officially claim that it was a truck bomb until hours later. Yeah, so there's no way that person should have known at that point. And it goes on. I mean, they're basically, it's a lot of stuff that we heard during 9-11. People were tipped off. They were told not to come to work. 
Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I do know that everything I've read on this has basically said there's no way that this truck full of this fertilizer and diesel could do this. According to high-ranking military officers who got involved in this, they said the, there was absolute evidence of advanced bomb making. And that was actually reported on the news. Yes. There's actual clips of people saying before they, fig- they, they changed the narrative that this was advanced bomb making. There's a bunch of those reports that suddenly, like you said, disappeared. They were there originally, and then suddenly gone. There's a lot of time discrepancies, and look, I'm going to give leeway on that because when you're, you know, when you're working at a chaotic scene like that, it takes a while. It's like if you roll up on a wreck with multiple cars, and you got a lot of people who have been involved, people who saw it. It takes a while to sort that out. So I'm going to give them a little pass on that. However, there were the presence of a lot of responders before the blast. Mm -hmm. 90 minutes before the explosion many people noticed and later reported the presence of emergency police responders in full combat attire in the vicinity of the Murrah building here's the interesting thing about that too these claims were outright rejected by local and federal law enforcement at the time however the number of witnesses became so high that the authorities were forced to admit that they did have responders on the ground before the blast occurred. But did they ever explain why? No. No. According to this, even more bizarre, the officials never offered an explanation for the early presence of the responders. Interest in the matter died down almost overnight, even though the media had made a big deal about it initially. They were told to shut up. Mm-hmm. This is another weird one, too. McVeigh publicly stated that his reason for the Oklahoma City attack was retribution against the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives over the handling of the Waco deal. The truck that he parked was about as far away from the ATF offices as you can get. And we're supposed to believe that he was this sort of lone wolf and he had spent two years meticulously planning this event and he was all mad at the ATF and he parked it outside of the federal building by accident. That, that's what they were trying to get everybody to believe. Yeah. No security footage. It was confiscated. It was instantly made the property of the United States government. They never ever have ever released any of it it disappeared a lot of people notice this i you can think of about it whatever you want because and it kind of does go to the 9-11 according to several articles and i'm going to read this one specifically perhaps one of the most intriguing and ominous points involves controlled demolition a company that removed the remains of the blast site rather quickly and certainly before extensive investigation of the of the crime scene could take place. This is especially suspicious because the remains were taken to an unknown location buried in the ground and are still under guard. 
Some theorists took even more notice of controlled demolition when they carried out similar operations after 9-11. Supposedly, those were sold as used material in private sales. However, most people know that they were basically scrapped. And I think one of the, one of the things that crosses paths with a lot of stuff that we've talked about, Timothy McVeigh, who had spent time in the U.S. military, claimed he was microchipped and was under mind control. This guy, Ted Gunderson, took notice of McVeigh's words because Gunderson had already suspected that a high-level military bomb had been used rather than a crude homemade contraption. Mm-hmm. According to Gunderson, McVeigh had received, quote, high-level military training, and then his bizarre statements might be proved to be more than the, quote, mad ravings of a lunatic. And I've seen lots of articles and lots of people talking about, and I'm talking about in, in, the, in the government and so forth. In fact, there's a great article on Rents.com. Timothy McVeigh was telling the truth. Timothy McVeigh was telling the truth. It's not your father's mind control technology. And it goes through the entire thing as to how what he was talking about is probably plausible. According to this article, he believes the implanted microchip was chip 1110, which performs two functions. The chip relays the process information from the chip carrier to the one who put it in. Second, the chip creates a computer-generated mental visualization based upon the user's request. The visualization encompasses the individual and allows the user to place himself into selected battle spaces. You and I have talked about this. Yes. Do you find that super far-fetched that that could have been the case? No, not at all. There's another great article, if you'd like to read it, is from Winter Watch. It's called Hidden in Plain Sight, The Truth About Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City Bombing. Now, when they say the truth about it, of course, you know, that's their truth. But there's a lot of really good evidence. And I'm telling you, this uh, Trentadu, this Jesse Trentadu, who the media won't touch, they won't put him on TV, they won't give him articles, they won't interview him. He actually won a million-dollar settlement in the death of his brother. And he's, been, he's just basically been using that money to continue to sue, sue, sue. And he's sued for FOIA requests. He sued all up and down. He's the one that has come up with a lot of stuff about this, and nobody will talk to him. He goes through this timeline of how McVeigh was assembled in this warehouse in Oklahoma City. It was done by a guy named Poindexter and a guy, another guy named Roberto and somebody called The Major. McVeigh got wrapped up in it, no doubt about it. So when McVeigh got arrested, this is what he had to say, quote, I was never trying to escape capture. My arrest was all a part of the mission. The bombing had to land squarely at the feet of someone involved in the anti-government movement. I left a paper trail even a blind man could follow. It goes on. I mean, basically, the conclusion of this guy, Trentadu, is that the FBI was involved. It was done for the purposes of terrorizing America and scaring everybody so that they could pass legislation to reduce freedom. And 
I still think we're seeing the effects of it today because Merrick Garland, whenever anybody asks him what's the greatest threat to America, he always says domestic terrorism in the form of white supremacy and so forth. So a couple of points that I want to make before we wrap this up that I think are key to this whole thing. And we're, again, and we, I know we say this a lot because we really want, if you're interested in this, we're giving you the launching point to go into this. There's a lot in this story. But as far as the tapes outside go, I thought this was interesting. So on the morning of the blast, on the news and in the official FBI documents, they told the public that the four cameras in the four locations went blank at basically the same time because they had either run out of tape or the tape was being replaced. There's two different reports on that. However, the interesting thing is, is that the tape started taping again at 9.02 a.m. after the blast. Like right after the blast. Yeah. So you don't see the truck actually pull up. You just see it sitting there. Also, I thought this was interesting. So McVeigh, if you go into his testimony, he, he talks about this whole network of FBI, ATF, all these people who were involved. Uh, there was the major and all these things. And there was this Elohim City group. And this was a, a place where this ARA, which was uh, sort of a right wing, well, not sort of. It was. It was. It was sort of a. It was a. It was a right wing, white supremacist kind of hangout. And McVeigh says that he was handed fifty thousand dollars to begin his mission of hobnobbing with other agents and informants at militia meetings and gun shows. When he penetrated the Elohim City Group, the joke was that there were more co-intel agents than real militia. So much so that it was known as Alphabet City. Some believing that Elohim City was little more than a deep state creation. Which sounds very familiar to a lot of the other things that we've talked about. A lot of the other things we've talked about. A lot. I mean, it just, it just goes deeper and deeper and, and deeper. McVeigh actually told the FBI who the other people were involved in this thing. And, oh, no, they never checked into it. They never looked into who they were. We don't know. We don't know exactly. He gave them names. We don't know who those people are because they were, they were never questioned. They were never brought forth. All we got was John Doe 1 and 2, mysterious mm -hmm. people. And, and it seemed like it's one of those things where they just wanted to get this done and over with and out of the way. As Here's fast the answer. as Here's who it was. Let's get rid of it. As fast as possible and control the media. Mm -hmm. I mean, the media flipped on this on a dime. I have a couple of documentaries that if you're interested in watching, one of them in particular gathered a lot of the early reporting, especially from the Oklahoma channels and even the national news. And then like within a day, it all changed and nobody would talk about what they were talking about before they wiped out any talking to any of the witnesses in the building. It was very controlled. It was, it's really bizarre to watch it happen in real time. Very bizarre. But in my opinion, and you may agree or disagree, 
But I, if, if you look at the pattern of this, you have three buildings. You have the, the World Trade Center in 93. You have the Oklahoma City bombing in 95. And then, of course, you have the 9-11 bombing of the Twin Towers. In my opinion, the World Trade Center and the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City were warm-ups. They were inside jobs. I know it is not patriotic to say that. I know it is a very conspiratorial thing to say that. But the more I look into these things, and I'm not talking about even the crazy conspiracy theories. I'm talking about stuff that has been uncovered that is in their own documents, in their own writings, through the FOIA request and from tests and from experts who were there. There is no doubt that these were inside jobs. And we'll do the 9-11 at one point. That one's a little tougher because there's a lot of crazy conspiracy theories about that. But given the amount of time from this 1995 attack to today, and all that's come out, and all that's been suppressed, there's no doubt that this was, and I think McVeigh was involved. I think he did park a truck out there. I think it was all part of the plot. I think it, it goes really closely with the whole up there in, is it Michigan, where they tried to supposedly kidnap the governor, Whitmer. And turns out more people were FBI than those who were actually trying to do or plotting to do it. They were just a bunch of patsies that the FBI got into and said, hey, let's, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. You're, gonna, you're in with us. You're in with us, right? And they were like, yeah, 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 let's go. And then they arrested them. Of course. So if you're not familiar with the Oklahoma City bombings, I encourage you to go deep into it. There's a lot of information out there, especially check out Jesse Trentadue, T-R-E-N-T-A-D-U-E, and Terrence Yeeke, Y-E-A-K-E-Y. Those two stories just in themselves. In fact, Jesse Trentadue, <laughs> he had a couple of witnesses who were ready to step forward. Oh, guess what? Committed suicide. The other one died of a heart attack and so forth and so forth. And all of it, it just seems it's all too convenient and it's all too weird. Yeah, very much so. What's your conclusion on it? What, do you th what are your thoughts on this? It's a very interesting one because there's so many different avenues you can go down and it depends on which narrative you believe um, and whose evidence you believe. And I think that was the hardest part on this. There's so much evidence that says that McVeigh and Nichols and everyone else was on their own, but that's all coming from the government. And then a lot of other evidence that shows that there was suppressed evidence that the government didn't want us to see that says there was a lot more to this and that they, that they had a lot more help. So I think that there was more. It wasn't McVeigh on his own. He had help. He had background. He had somebody or some organization backing him and helping him out. Yeah, I have a memo from the DOD, from FEMA, and U.S. Force Command Daily Log. These are all legit. 
that claim that at least two additional bombs were found inside the Murrah building. Mm-hmm. And those were the ones that didn't go off. Right. So wh- what were they doing there? Who put those there? McVeigh said he didn't know anything about them, that that wasn't part of the deal. No. I have Oklahoma Highway Patrol logs that say that uh, there were reports of additional bombs confirmed by the fire department. According to them, they say the Murrow buildings, they were just practice bombs that required uh, trained experts of the police and fire departments to be put in there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. There, there are a lot of narratives here. But I think there's way more questions than answers. Way more. Suicides, the supposed suicide deaths that were improbable. The cover-up, I mean, like you said, expedited way in which they got rid of the rubble, the way they, the evidence team just, and they kept saying, well, it was, it was, you know, it was chaotic, they were inexperienced, and so forth. But wouldn't you think that would mean you take more time? That you don't just rush in, get rid of everything, but that appears to be what happened. All right. Uh, before we get on out of here, I just want to mention Shane McGowan from the Pogues passed away, and I never worked with Shane. I, I've watched the Pogues a few times in concert, but uh, Shane McGowan, if you're not familiar with the Pogues, they were pioneers in music, and it's sad to see somebody like Shane McGowan pass. Also one of my personal favorite authors of all time. He owns only 62. Tim Dorsey just passed away. And of course, Henry Kissinger's passed away. I don't know how many people are exactly sad about that, but he definitely left a legacy. There's no doubt. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people checking out, but I wanted to mention Shane McGowan because he was brilliant. He was an interesting character. And it's kind of amazing that he lived as long <laughs> as long as he did, the way he treated himself. But oh yeah. So reminder, you can email us down the rh at protonmail.com, down the rh at protonmail.com. Maybe we missed something here. You got some evidence or you'd like to counteract our narrative. We'd love to have a discussion with you over there. And I'll be mm-hmm. back for the midweek and we will return next week with a brand new episode in the meantime have a great week i'm big d and i'm brandon and we're out of here see you later